Imagine what it'd be like if we were really curious about each other. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relational Spirituality, the weekly podcast of LargerStory.com, the podcast that sees all relationships as spiritual and all spiritual formation as relational. Now, here's your host for this week, Roseanne Moore. Hi, Larger Story audience. We're so happy to have you with us again today. I'm Roseanne Moore, your host today for the Relational Spirituality Podcast. And I have a very special guest today. Dr. Stephanie Holmes was a schoolmate of mine in high school, and we've touched base at various times over the years. She is Dr. Stephanie Holmes. She's a board-certified counselor transitioning to a, a Christian life coach. You are an ordained minister. You are a certified autism specialist and autism researcher. And uh, Stephanie, I'm so happy that you're here with me today. Thank you for being here. I'm so happy to reconnect. Yeah, it's great. Stephanie has actually been very helpful to me at various points over the years when I've had questions because my oldest child is on the spectrum. I was wading through other things and she was looking into the neuroscience and from a counselor's perspective and all of that. And she offered some good, helpful points at various crossroads for me. Stephanie, you wrote a book in 2015 about your experience of having a child on the spectrum and what that was like, not just between the two of you, but in the context of church and school and society in general, the challenge of how the response was to the fact that Sydney walked through the world differently. But you've come back and you've written a new book as a family, Embracing the Autism Spectrum, Finding Hope and Joy, Navigating the Neurodiverse Family Journey. And you did it together as a family. Would you tell me some more about what what brought that on? Why the family book? So back in 2015, I waited to even put that one out because I wanted my oldest daughter to be out of high school, out of respect for her. She didn't want some stuff about her childhood being written when she was still in a vulnerable space around bullies and not nice people. So I wrote that. And really the focus of that book was I grew up in circles that was based on kind of the prosperity doctrine. Back then, and still is alive and well now, it's not only that if you name it and claim it, The darker side of prosperity gospel is if something is wrong or if you are not financially blessed or if you have a diagnosis, then you are then cursed or not in God's favor or not under his protection. Mm -hmm. And so that being a foundation when my daughter was diagnosed and I had done all the good Christian things and got all my gold stars in church and school and Christian college, I did the Christian girl thing was not supposed to be happening. So from the infertility journey to then having um, a child diagnosed and not knowing what to do and just how the church received that and not having support, I was in a faith crisis for a while. And so that book originally is me and that and going through infertility and going through this diagnosis and rediscovering God, not based on church or people who don't represent him well, but Mm -hmm. understanding who God is and really seeing that I wouldn't have gotten through those times without his help. And so mm-hmm. we were, I was just thinking this year, it was really maybe time for a revamp of that book. And at the same time, I was having those thoughts. My oldest daughter said, mom, I turned 25 this year and there's a whole lot more of that story. You left me in middle school 
high school. And it's really your version and your eyes of the story. I'd really like to talk about personal impact. So she and I were going to do mother daughter. And then my husband said, I've been diagnosed in the processes too. We didn't know we were a neurodiverse marriage. And I really like to talk to dads and husbands and talk about my journey. And then my youngest said, what about a sibling's perspective and my own ADHD? Because sometimes ADHD wasn't, didn't get as much attention as the autism. And so that set us on the path of writing this book together and an unintended but positive consequence was it really helped us see everyone's journey from another person's perspective. It's bridged some relationship. There's been some healing there. And my husband said, Steph, I wouldn't have thought to have said these things and process things out loud unless we had a reason, you know, to write them down. But you know, one of my daughters said, some of the things dad said I really needed to hear. And it's now it's there in this book. It was a long process when you're taking four authors and integrating a story. And we also wanted to take it beyond a story to invite this reader to have spiritual formation. So there's devotionals and questions like stop and pause. Was your view of God skewed? Is there someone in your life causing you pain? And where do you need support? And what's the next action step? And the girls, I think, are I, I love their transformational stuff because Erica had to deal with having anger in her heart to her sister. And Sydney struggled with the verse being fearfully and wonderfully made. And everyone's perspective and spiritual formation from the book, I think, is something that's unique out there. I think it would help a lot of marriages and families and people serving them to okay. integrate faith in their neurodiverse journey. I was looking at some of these chapter titles and I just thought this is so rich, unrealistic life maps, trusting God's guidance on an unforeseen journey. When hope fades, embracing God's presence in moments of despair and hopelessness. I'm thought they, like everybody who's been a believer very long, the terrain of their journey may be slightly different, but everybody's been at these places, right? You know? Different <laughs> and, trials, different yeah. seasons. Yeah, this is this book is the backdrop is autism. That was the those were the shaping events for you guys, but the spiritual journey that you were on was so much deeper, and it's very universal. So that was part of the reason I really wanted you on here, both because as a mother of a child that's, and actually I have, my oldest son is on the spectrum. I have a child with ADHD like you do. And because your younger daughter has ADHD. And then I had a, two children with dyslexia and one with a speech, and one of them had a speech impediment as well. So we've had to work through all of those things. And there is a very real challenge, I think, for kids to feel defined by what they feel like is a deficit. And I, I don't think the church, always, for reasons like you were talking about, sometimes it's theological reasons, but sometimes it's just things like not understanding and anticipating needs and therefore expecting everybody to fall in certain parameters in terms of how things work in a group or things like that, that often special needs families just end up having to back out or getting lost in the shuffle because it's too hard to stay connected right. or because they, because judgments are made. That was one big thing I did try when I was dealing with a new situation to set it up by saying, 
this is my son who's going to be involved. He is on the autism spectrum. He's very high functioning. He is great at, and I'd start with, he's great at all of these things. This is the way he does need extra support. Mm -hmm. And we're really excited. We're going to be a part of this because most of the time, if people knew what was going on, they were willing to be supportive, but a lot of, but if they don't know, and of course, if you don't have a diagnosis, it's really hard. But if they don't know, then they're far more prone to assume behavior issues instead of recognizing sensory things or. Right. And disrespect like and dishonor and yeah. all of the D's. One of my friends who's also a mom of someone spectrum said, you got to know the D's. What really is disrespect and disobedience and dishonor? And mm -hmm. what's really disorder, diagnosis, and difference. Because yes. if you confuse those two things, you can't really punish a difference, a sensory issue. Can a person on the spectrum and ADHD be disrespectful and dishonoring? Of course they can. Mm -hmm. um, but in the moment when they're dysregulated, and that's very confusing in church settings, especially like I'm Gen X, and most of the teachers would have been boomer or older. So there would have been a look me in the eye. I told you to do this one time. Sit down. Stop asking questions. And if you have that kind of leadership with a, a neurodivergent child, which could be any form of learning, processing, ADHD, autism, mm -hmm. if you think about what church is supposed to be for our kids and their discipleship groups, whether it's like Awanas or Rangers or Missionettes or whatever your program is, there's a learning aspect. There's reading, writing, listening, sitting still, making sure they understand the concept. All kids are black and white thinkers, but autistic kids are super black and white thinkers. So then they really understand the concept. And so asking questions is not being argumentative. It's, I don't understand. Please tell me more. So if she would ask a question, like, I'll never forget this. My child was eight years old and she came home and said, I don't believe in Jesus and God anymore after today's lesson at church. And I was like, okay, internally don't freak out, but ask the question. Ask the question. And I was like, what? She said, we read the scripture today and it was a translation that said when Jesus was in the grave, he slept. <laughs> and so she had said, if Jesus, and this is eight-year-old reasoning, right, Jesus yeah. really didn't die and he just slept. He didn't rise again and he's not really the savior. Therefore, I don't believe in him. I was like, okay, let's get another translation out and right. let's read the different ways slept sometimes meant death in ancient. Uh -huh. And we had to really do that. Right. If she had not said that, that was like already starting to cement in her head. Church is a lie. Scripture right. is a lie. Jesus right. never died. He just slept. Right. I sleep and get up. That's not dying and raising again. And at eight years old, we had to double back with different translations, Greek, how a Greek word meant there and how it was translated in the English for an eight-year-old right. to understand. It's just like, then she was like, oh, okay. So Jesus died and rose again. He's the savior again. I believe. <laughs> oh boy. That was like, we got it. We have to really make sure what's happening at church and at home. What right. did you hear? What right. does that mean? <laughs> Let's circle right. back and talk about some of these things. Right. Please answer my child's question at church, y'all. <laughs> Please answer her question. <laughs> For sure. Oh my goodness. Yeah. One of the things I can remember when Michael was probably two years old, we were, and because Anita Grace was a newborn, we were making cranberry orange bread and I had him put the cranberries into the food processor and and as I turned to get another ingredient he dumped them all back out and I was like and then all of a sudden I realized I said 
And he, because he, he looked very happy and smiley and he started putting them back in. He was shape sorting. He had a shape sorter. He was shape sorting. And that was my first picture, I think, in my head, like clearly of this child always has a reason for what he's doing, but he, how he's looking at the world is very different very different. how I am. <laughs> so right. it could have looked like disobedience. It could exactly. have looked like wrecking the project. It could have looked like just being contrary. And so being curious at that point of asking the question, what are you thinking? What were you doing? What are you doing? Instead of flipping out over it is super, or why don't you believe in Jesus? What was said in Sunday school? <laughs> really important. Instead of panicking, and uh, internally, I was panicking. I was I'm totally sure. in freak out panic mode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Like we're but, too. We are too young for a faith crisis. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Oh, so I want to that you brought up the whole issue of the relationality because your response had to be instead of authoritarian. This is what we believe. The Bible says you and you instead engaged her question and explored where the thought was coming from. And then you could trace it back. I think that's one of the things that Dr. Larry Crabb has, he, he talked a lot, talks a lot in his books about relational holiness, that being curious, following where the spirit is going, actually listening and honoring the person who's in front of you by engaging that it's not a matter of teaching. It's finding out what's happening inside the person in front of you, trusting that the spirit of God is at work in both of you. And you want to follow that instead of just assuming or trying to pour into somebody else. How, where do you see, what's that been like in your journey? Because I know we've talked a little bit and you had your journey of finding out the external things about sensory disorders and how that works, but it's always been in a Christian context of what does this mean as far as relating to one another and loving each other and spiritual formation. Yeah. And I think back in my late twenties, early thirties as a young mom and kids early diagnosed and just trying to figure out like, how do I help each child reach their potential? I always would say, to my oldest, autism is a part of you, but it doesn't define you. Or sometimes mm -hmm. like I would say, do you have autism or does autism have you today? So it's like a piece of you. Don't deny that part of your identity. Right. So we got to understand that. And Erica with her ADHD was more kind of inattentive, not really hyperactive or getting in trouble. She was usually mm -hmm. the, the favorite child in any school or church activity, whereas Eric Sydney was usually like, does she have to come back or can mm -hmm. you stay with her? So they had completely different experiences at church. And mm -hmm. I think then in survival mode, I would call it, I was just trying to help my kids and help them reach their potential. I did not, I neglected their relationship to each other mm -hmm. a lot. I wish of all the therapies that we had, I wish if I could go back and do it again, because their relationship fell apart over the years. And mm -hmm. I missed that. I also missed because Erica was more compliant, but people pleaser I didn't ask her as many questions like Sydney's was obvious. If she was melting down or dysregulated, mm -hmm. it was obvious. And Erica would, um, it was, she wasn't a squeaky wheel and I did not do my due diligence. I have to say, how are you doing? How did that interaction affect you? So 
that was missing. And really, I would say, my husband and I were just talking about this week, like where did we really start emotional, healthy spirituality? Because we grew up again in a holiness context. It's how much of your shoulders are showing, your knees are showing, or are you going to church? Are you reading your Bible? Are you, are you serving the church so many hours? We grew up in that holiness as being set apart by doing and looking different. Right. Instead right. of relational love and loving each other. There wasn't abuse or anything in our family and our home that, but we weren't relating well. And so it was really during this kind of time of trauma, when we were displaced from our home because of a tree, I, when you get to a place, you have no home and all of your belongings are gone and you have no vehicles. Talk about being totally reliant on God for everything. It really put us in the COVID. And so we were locked in the house. So essentially with two kids in different spaces in two different schools, and we picked up emotionally healthy relationships by the Scazeros. And we started teaching that and we started practicing those tools with each other and teaching other couples how to do that. And so each of our children had a come to Jesus moment with us where they wanted to tell us some things. And because of that, we didn't go into the authoritative, I'm the parent, how dare you speak that to me? But okay, something's really going on. There's pain here. We've missed something here. Let's listen incarnationally, as the Scazzaros would say, and ask questions, be curious. We say that all the time. Be curious and humble, not prideful and entitled. If you're entitled and you think you already know and that you can't learn something from the younger generation, that's going to be a block because this younger generation wants authenticity. They like organic stuff. They like feeling like they can impact you as much as you're impacting them. They want that reciprocity and mutuality in relationship. They're not as hierarchical as some of us grew up in. And so they want to be part of the discussion. And so that changing that learning mindset and um, learning to relate and ask questions. And then the book just finished it off with a nice bow to help us really see each other's perspectives better. But it's definitely been a journey that holiness and set apart is also back to what Jesus said, by this, they will know that you are my disciples, how you love one another, not how you serve your church, not how you read your Bible and get your gold stars. But how do you just treat the people in your marriage, in your home, and just the people God's entrusted you start there. And that was really transformative, I think, for us. And not whether or not you preach all the right sermon points. <laughs> right. Because, um, the younger generation is looking. They are watching that what you're saying and what you're doing match. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things that I'm working with kids who are deconstructing right now is my mom or dad was one way at church, the best volunteer, smiley, everybody loved them. and was a completely temperament and mood at home. If I could have lived with the person I saw at church, that's one thing. But the person I see at home and how she speaks to us or lies on the phone or gets out of things or is harsh with each other or my parents' marriage did not reflect anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I was hearing how a marriage and family should be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's this younger generation isn't marrying, they're Mm -hmm. living together. And they're really, when I'm talking to them, the under 30s, they didn't see modeled in their parents Mm -hmm. what they were hearing at church was supposed to be a godly marriage and family. And that disconnect and cognitive dissonance is part of a lot of the deconstruction that we're seeing right now. I agree. I agree. And I think I'm see I'm working with a lot of women who are saying, I did all the things. Like I did all the things. I stayed sexually pure. I married a Christian. I did all the things. And I ended up in an abusive marriage 
which was a disaster. And now not only am I divorced or trying to figure out how, what to do with this marriage that's destroying me, but my kids don't want to have anything to do with marriage because even though we have a 40 year marriage, it's a nightmare and they know that. So yeah, if that's I, marriage. I don't want it. No, exactly, thank you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When we miss the heart of the gospel, the fact that we are, we're saved to become like Jesus in the way that we live, not in a checklist way, like you're talking about, but in the way that we treat other people and the way that we value other people, what motivates us? Because sometimes we have to say things that are hard to hear, but is the motivation for that the well-being of the other person or is it, is there entitlement involved? Things like that. That's really important. That leads me to this special niche that we find ourselves in. A lot of times when a child is diagnosed on the spectrum, a parent or a grandparent, um, because it's 80% hereditary, we are working with what we are calling neurodiverse Christian couples. And a little nuance here is like when I gave that story about Sydney and what she heard at church, adults on the spectrum are also black and white and literal concrete thinkers. And sometimes a verse like your body is not your own in first Corinthians, or women should be silent in Peter, or um, wives submit to your husband in Ephesians 5. These very literal topics are taken. If that's already in some of our church settings anyway, there's rules and rules and you follow the rules and rules. But take that out one more standard deviation here on our graph of someone who is on the spectrum is a black and white thinker and was brought up in that church culture. And that is usually setting up the household to be under a lot of control. Because especially if the dad is on the spectrum, because if the rules mean this and the Bible says this, your feelings and your desires and what you want does not matter. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing, and then add on top of that, I truly believe if I don't spank you or be harsh with you, God is going to be mad at me. So I've got a black and white thinker who's taking the word in a way as a weapon instead of a tool. And then I believe if I don't, God will be mad at me. We have a problem in our nerd versus Christian families if that's operating that way. And just like you said, everything you just said, the wife said, he was a Christian and in this and this, we pure and modest and we're raising our kids or we homeschooled or we did all the things that you know conservative Christianity told us to do. And I'm being emotionally abused. And I talked to the guy and he'd be, and this is his mindset. I've never cheated on her. I bring home a paycheck. I don't go anywhere after hours. So what? I come home and I don't help or do whatever. That's her job because she's the woman. And it's okay. You didn't hit her or you didn't sleep around, but there's emotional neglect and relational neglect and there's abandonment and there's rejection. Mm -hmm. And all of those internally research is showing us that emotional and verbal and psychological abuse do the same damage to your brain as physical assault. And one author is calling it domestic silence instead of domestic violence. Your brain has Mm -hmm. pain. Mm -hmm. Trauma is trauma, whether it's physical trauma or another type of trauma. And that is not being talked about in our churches because a lot of the women that I worked with, their pastors will say, then you just need to suffer. You need to take up your cross and you just need to be a better wife or the do more mentality instead of calling the husband into task and saying, you're not loving your wife. So men in the church need to gather around you and help 
form a community and group identity on how do we help you love your wife and children instead of we're afraid we're going to lose a tither or a head of households going to leave the church and we're not doing that level of work. So Mm -hmm. that's one of my little soapboxes I get up on is if we're really going to teach community pastors, lay counselors, you're going to have to do the hard work. And when someone says I'm being abused and harmed and neglected, and my Mm -hmm. kids are being physically or psychologically and emotionally abused, we have to take that seriously. And we need to teach relational spirituality and Mm -hmm. not just holiness rules and vows. And that's this huge issue. So many divorces in my neurodiverse Christian couples, because at some point, She's like, I'm out. I tap out. I can't. My kids are just are not even respecting me because of the verbal and psychological abuse I take under the guise of submission. And right. so they don't respect me and they don't. If that's marriage, I don't want marriage. So it's creating a lot of cracks in the family. And I feel like the church really should be a hub of teaching more about um, relationships and spirituality, love and that generosity and charity start at home. Before you're volunteering at our church and being in any ministry, how's it going with your marriage and family? Absolutely. Yeah. Because you talked about the neuroscience. The It's interesting to me that there's so much pressure that as soon as a woman comes forward, like she comes to her pastor, usually what happens is all the things you're talking about. Are you doing, what are you doing to try to get him to be better? What are you doing? How do you pray more? You love him more. You do these things to try to get him to be better. But what's happening neurologically, the a woman who is abused emotionally, brain scans are like those of a prisoner of war. And if we have a prisoner of war, somebody who's been highly trained to withstand enemy torture and imprisonment, if we don't expect them to escape on their own from that, we believe that we have to go in and we believe it's our responsibility to go after them and secure them and their well-being. The expectation that a woman should just stay in that situation that is so damaging and should just take it and nobody's, like you said, coming around her to protect and to intervene and to hold accountable is just, it's wrong on so many levels. And it's a misrepresentation of the heart of God for the oppressed. And it does no favors for the one who is not loving. That's the other thing. It's not just about the victim, the woman or the children. It's, or it can be a man in some cases, but it's more frequently, statistically, it's far more frequently the women and children. It also does no favors for the abuser who is going to stand before God and give an account one day. And in the meantime, whose prayers are being hindered for not loving his wife. Yeah, I'm, I agree with your. And the uh, woman and, and sometimes the hard thing. And I guess if you're a man, you don't understand this. But if you're a male pastor, understand the risk involved for a woman to leave, especially if she is not the breadwinner, has homeschooled and doesn't have a career skill. And then could possibly lose her church community on top of it. Yes. So in the time of need and pain and whatever, a pastor or a a elders board is applying pressure and she tends to be the one excommunicated. Yes. And not the one who was perpetrating the abuse, harm or neglect. Mm -hmm. And so that adds a double injury. And now we have faith, hurt and spiritual abuse and religious abuse. And that's what the kids see. Right. 
the kids are watching and they're like, wow, mom is trying to do what's right for us. And the church or the leadership is saying otherwise, that's not helping that next generation and what they're seeing on who is God, the father, mm-hmm. a loving father versus not, you didn't follow the rules. You got a divorce and it's not adultery. I heard this line from a pastor one time. It made me so mad. He said, we have to pastor both of them. I was like, I get that. I get that. You want to minister to both of them, but that might mean one gets to be ministered to in the church body and one is ministered to one-on-one over coffee. Mm-hmm. The and, one who was being abused or perpetrated being- against should not be the one kicked out of church or made to feel less than you can still minister to him one-on-one on on the phone through coffee office hours Mm -hmm. and say this is part of um, the matthew principle someone came to you you didn't listen two people came to you now we're going before church leadership so Mm -hmm. now it's time for you not to be here until Mm -hmm. you change your heart and mindset and love your wife and family well and that gets extremely complicated with a black and white concrete thinker when they are taking scripture out of context or too black and white. Again, if you stand on thinking I'm right because the Bible and God tells me and your mm-hmm. wife keeps saying, you're hurting me, you're abusing me. I feel neglected by you. Like this marriage is killing me. Most of the women I work with have an, um, an autoimmune disorder yeah, or have some kind of thyroid issue, something that is stress induced. And they're still being told, you just got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You're just going to have to choose your husband or choose the marriage to the detriment of your own body, to the detriment of your own psychological and, and spiritual maturity. Mm-hmm. And so I challenge that and say, okay, at the same time, somebody's got to be parenting these children and someone's got to still be around <laughs> to be healthy, to be the parent to the kids. And so what does that mean mm-hmm. for you? How are you going to be emotionally healthy um, and, and continue to work with the kids if you can't even get out of bed in the morning because you're mm-hmm. in so much pain psychologically, physically, or emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that part is just so missed. And so our clergy really need to be updated on the neuroscience of abuse, all forms, and that we've got to get out of the mindset that adultery is the only way out of marriage. It, it, if there's abuse and addiction, it's unrepentant. Right. Um, you've got to walk alongside the one who is being perpetrated against and not empower the one who was doing those things. Exactly. Amen. Amen. Have you worked at all with called to peace ministries or Chris Moles? They've done a lot of work. One of the things that Chris Moles said, cause he works with abusers a lot. And one of the things he says is the major mistake that pastors make is it's like hearing the clopping of hooves on a, on cobblestones and thinking it's a horse when it's a zebra. And so they project the idea, they hear certain things and they project the idea of what would be true in a good marriage. And they don't understand that the dynamic is one of control rather than love. And then they put the burden on the victim and, and they enable the perpetrator without even realizing that they're doing it. Understanding that, I think that there's a huge problem in understanding what the dynamics of, of abuse actually look like. Larry, I know when I was going through, I was trying to figure out what what was happening and I didn't want a separation, but it was looking like that was going to be necessary for safety. The thing that Larry said to me was, Roseanne, it's never right for a believer to kill a marriage But when the spouse has, with their selfishness and their entitlement, killed a marriage, you're allowed to bury it. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Because you know, if we think about the breaking of the vow, and then here's where th- people don't understand. When you make your vow, it's I so-and-so take you to love, honor, and cherish. That is the vow. The next part is the win in good and bad and all of that and forsaking all mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. So the vow was broken mm-hmm. under the love, honor, and cherish right. piece. Forsaking on others is very important to a covenant marriage. But that's not the, all of the vow that we usually mm-hmm. vow in a Christian marriage. And so the mm-hmm. opposite of love, honor, and cherish, you have apathy, and dishonor, and not cherishing or not showing love. And sometimes that is a, as abuse as well. And, and so you- we get all caught up in the adultery mm-hmm. part. And it's, hey, wait a minute, where's the love, honor, cherish piece? That was the vow and the promise that was made. That's what's broken. The vow was broken then, not just with an extramarital affair. And in sickness and in health and all those things, when life does those things, better or worse, that life does. Not that the person's causing it. The person is causing you sickness and the person is causing financial detriment because they're gambling or addicted or won't get a job or won't stay employed. That's a whole different reason as you said is if life happens and oh there's a job loss and oh there's a cancer diagnosis that's what those things mean it doesn't mean when one person is causing these other things to happen and inflict them upon you that would that goes against the first part of the vow to love right. honor and cherish wow. absolutely Absolutely. I want to go back to the book because you you gave the mic to the kids. That's the phrase my family uses whenever whenever mom's voice is the dominant voice and they're not feeling heard. They will say, mom, you need to pass the mic <laughs> because as parents, we are the dominant voice for the early childhood and really in their head for their whole life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so as being conscious of giving voice to your kids, what was most meaningful to you in what came out of working on the book together and hearing your children's impressions of things? And were there things you learned from them that, that you just, you hadn't seen before until you worked on this project together? Yeah, I think going through certain things, like especially some of Sydney's mental health crisis and bullying and exclusion and all of that, when you're in it and you're like, thank God we're out of it, we're on the other end. But reading her stuff and just seeing, because she had never shared with me as a child that she struggled with Psalm 139 about being fearfully and wonderfully made. And again, is that a truth in the scripture? So reading through her thinking and her feeling and then where it led to her spiritual formation. One of my favorite things in hers was even once she came back to faith or whatever, she even used Philippians 4.13 incorrectly. In Christ, I can do all things. It was like, I'm going to do all things and prove all y'all wrong. So <laughs> even with Philippians 4.13, she was taking it out of context and it was like, oh, wait, now that right. I'm mature, it means in all things, I need Christ's strength right? <laughs> do things. I was making it about me and my strength to show you. And now it's, oh, Christ's strength is how I do. And so just seeing her formation and her thought processing and what a She's in such a great church, um, great community. Um, They're all about community and formation. The senior pastor specifically has a heart for the 20 to 30 year olds to make sure they are, you know, connected in places of leadership. So all of that and just seeing like, there's like mixed feelings of, man, if this could have happened at an earlier stage, maybe some of these other things would have happened. But then 
maybe some of these things are part of the reason she's in this different formation. So for Sydney, that was my mindset there. For Erica, pain, it was so painful to read because I told her, I was like, when you write your first level of your chapter, like you can put it out there and don't worry about our feelings, put it out there. We'll shore it up. But she was first writing it out of still an anger and hurt place. Mm-hmm. So the first draft was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And it was like, man, I had to deal with some internal shame and not go into toxic shame. Like, how did I miss that? How did I not do that? Where was my counselor brain in those moments? And so I had a lot of like apologizing and still working on reconciling and what do we do different now? And she's like, back to be curious, ask questions about me. Don't just wait on something to go wrong. And then just see what was the internal struggle. What was the message she was telling herself about her father and I devastated me because that was definitely not what we thought we were communicating, Mm -hmm. but the way her little six, seven, eight, nine-year-old brain was interpreting things based on the chaos in our home with Sydney at times, that was just so important again to the reason of inclusion and intentional relationships. And that also the hope of the story is that we're still in repair and reconciliation and the girls are in process of repair and reconciliation and Erica's in reconciling and repairing and forgiving us. And so Mm -hmm. it really took the book to bring the rest of the stuff to the surface that had been under the surface and give us that lens. Cause I would say, okay, we all have to read each other's chapters too. Cause mm-hmm. maybe after you read somebody else's lens, that might change things. And so Erica's chapter is more palatable and more readable. It still <laughs> reflects pain. It still reflects right. her true right. story, right. but there's been a shift in her heart. Wow. What mom was going through, or I had no idea Sydney was suicidal in middle school. And that's why mom was on her so much and, and keeping mm-hmm. an eye on her and wasn't on me because I wasn't suicidal. All of these things from childhood and middle school to now the adult brains going, oh. And so at this point, I was afraid that at some point, maybe Erica would just get married and and move away and never come back. And if our relationship would have stayed where it was, that might've been the case. Mm -hmm. Obligation, duty, honor your mom and dad, visit them on Christmas. But through the book and really being honest about the good, the bad, the ugly, the things we failed at, the things we're still improving at, and then the how to reconcile and repair. I think that's really the most important part of the Mm -hmm. stories, no matter what you've been through. If you're willing to be humble and curious, Mm -hmm. you can Mm -hmm. reconcile and repair relationships. And I love that. That's the hope of the gospel, right? The hope of the gospel is not we get saved and now we do it right forever. The hope of the gospel is We have joined in following a savior who is there to save us at every point where we need saving and it's ongoing. And as we walk with him, we become more like him and, and seeing failure is, it's the doorway to grace. It's not being able to own our failure is not an impediment to the presence of God. It's, it is the doorway to receive the grace that he wants to lavish on us. So I love that. I love that you were able to do that and do that as a family and to offer that to one another and to, and also to not have to rush the process to like, let it heal as it heals instead of trying to just sweep it all under the carpet and make it all okay quickly. Which we Um, like to do in the South. Yes. Oh, the conflict. 
Let's get under that rug and just move on. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And that happens too often in the church as well. Just every, everybody forgive and it's all gone. And yeah, no, the honest ownership is so important and, and letting people heal. Stephanie, I think we we probably, I don't want to, I think I had to wrap up and let you get on with your day soon. Is there anything else that you want to share about the book before we close? I really want to encourage listeners to get this book because, and to check out Stephanie's podcast too, especially if, if you're in a neurodivergent mar- marriage or if you're If you know someone who is, I think her podcast would be a fantastic resource. And yeah, this is a great book for churches, as well as whether or not you're dealing with someone on the spectrum yourself, you're going to in society. So it's, it would be a great resource, but anyway, anything else you want to bring forward? Part of our um, hope of this book is first of all, it's four different people's perspectives. So if you maybe want to understand autism or ADHD or different perspectives, I think the book does that. If you are maybe not on an autism journey, but you're on a special needs journey or a child with differences journey, I think it still has some crossover. If you've been through infertility and all of that, I think that there's connections there. If you are a husband or you're on the spectrum or you have a child on the spectrum and maybe you don't go to the IEPs and you don't understand all of that, this could be a quick way to catch you up on maybe what's going on in your child's life. But the second um, population we really hope purchases the books are pastors and children's and youth workers. Because as Christians, what we want so much as a marriage and family is we want to be part of a faith community. We want to be included. We want our kids to be included. And if you don't include my child, I can't come. And if you don't include that child, what are they missing in their spiritual formation? And what are they taking on about how God sees them? Mm -hmm. Because Sydney said to me one time, if God, if the Christian school and the church doesn't want me, how do I know God really wants me? Because she was kicked out of three Christian schools and asked several times to leave various church functions. So from a six and seven, eight year olds perspective, Christian school and my Christian church do not want me present. How do I know God wants me and loves me? And why would he curse me to make me this way where other Christians don't want to be near me? That is devastating. So if you work with in children's work or youth ministry, you're you are so important for inclusion and belonging and acceptance or what Dr. Wilder would say, Hassed means I'm for you. Mm-hmm. They need people for them. So we've created a workbook as well. Um, it's on another website, but we have a workbook where you could do small groups and um, we have these questions for you. We, we say, if you are the person on the journey, you're on the four unforeseen journey, then you're the family in the passenger sheet. But we also have a section that says, if you are a caregiver, extended family, respite, or someone who's going to help this family along their journey, this will really help you. And I'm super excited um, because we did not have a blended family perspective. We're still a nuclear family, but I partnered with Ron Deal, who is a step family expert. And so there is a chapter talking about blending your family if a child is on the spectrum and blending your family if a partner is on the spectrum. And so I think that adds one more layer to make sure step families. And I have someone who is a single parent. John Fulligeller of Johnny and Friends, he wrote from being a single parent's perspective of someone Mm -hmm. 
on the spectrum and the kind of support he needed as a single parent dad. So we didn't get everything in there. Culture and diversity a little bit is lost on different people's experience, people of color. But we hope that at least you can get the book and either identify with the journey or learn how to better serve and minister to someone on the journey so that we can come back to our whole thing, emotional and healthy spirituality, transformation, belonging, attachment, has said joy. That's why we do this, hopefully. And so we hope that will be um, a good resource for you. Wonderful. That's great. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for being with us today. And for those of you who are listening, check out the show notes. You can find the links to her book and to her podcast and some of the other resources that she mentioned. They'll all be there in the show notes. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. If you like what you heard today, hit the like button just below. Then come back by subscribing to our podcast channel. For more resources on relational spirituality, go to our website at largerstory.com. Thank you.